Well, we're in a study of the book of First Peter towards the end of the Bible. We started it last week with just an overview of the book of First Peter, and now we dig into some specific verses right at the beginning. And the Apostle Peter begins this letter not with controversy, but with comfort. We'll see if you agree that it's not with controversy, but comfort. You see, the, he begins this, this letter with a, a title for Christians and really introducing a whole theological category that many Christians today find controversial. You don't want to talk about it, let alone talk about it as a first thing kind of way. In a first thing kind of way, Peter does here. He begins his letter by talking about it. And I'm talking about that name for Christians, which is the elect. I'm talking about that doctrine in our Bibles, which is called election, or in other places, predestination. This idea that God is sovereign over our eternal destinies, he chooses and he predetermines. Who'd have thunk to begin a letter on something like that? You might think it's confusing, it's mysterious, it's debatable, it's, it's emotional, it's worrying, it's controversial. Some might today think that bringing up election, especially in like a first sentence, is a bit like saying, nice to meet you, what do you think of gun control? Gun control, like the doctrine of election, is a pucker-up-or-duck issue. People either love it or they hate it. If you don't know that about the doctrine of election yet, you will eventually, perhaps before the day is out. But Peter, sure enough, begins with this E-word in his first sentence of 1 Peter. And it's not a mistake. It's not unwise. And he's not trying to stir up a hornet's nest of controversy. Instead, Peter is trying to show them this identity as elect or chosen ones, as a means of comfort in a fallen world. Let's read the first two verses together. There Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, in Peter's day, it was normal to write a letter beginning with the author and the recipient. We put the author, the recipient first in our letters. This is before texting kids. You'd actually put someone at the top, like, dear so-and-so. And then you'd move on to the rest of the letter, and you'd sign it at the end. Not just an initial, like a whole name. Well, Peter, even more elaborate than that, he, he unfolds who he is. He's not just Peter, he's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This was a common way to begin a letter, who is writing, and a description of the one who is writing. Sometimes they're even longer than this in Peter's day. And then there's the who, who it's to. And he doesn't just say to so-and-so or dear so-and-so. 
but he describes who they are. He's elaborate on the recipients. In fact, it takes up most of the first couple verses, this who, who he writes to. He's not just telling them who it's to, but because it's to them, he's telling them who they are. He's writing of Christian identity. We saw something of this last week in this word. We see in verse 1, they're exiles. That's part of their identity. He writes to them as exiles of the dispersion. They're dispersed Christians in various cities of the Roman world. And then several are listed there, probably in the order of the path that the messenger would take with this letter as he distributed it. And they're exiles. They're exiles has told us that three times in the book of 1 Peter. The rest of our lives as Christians, chapter 1, verse 17, is in exile. Chapter 2, verse 11, we're sojourners, we're exiles as Christians. Remember we said last week these are... A, a, people who were experiencing persecution for being Christians, and they were surprised by it. They were shaken by it. They thought it was a strange thing. And Peter writes to them to remind them of their identity, that they are strangers in a strange land. They're between two worlds. They have one foot in heaven and one foot on this earth. Now and not yet. That's what it means to be in exile. They know they've been exiled from the community around them. Like Jesus, they're to love the world and care for the world, preach the gospel to the world, but the world often will reject you and cast you aside, just as they did Jesus. He wants them to embrace their identity as exiles, but he simultaneously wants them to embrace and be encouraged by their identity as elect or chosen. Elect exiles. And again, he brings up this election not for controversy, but for comfort. They've been cast aside by society. They've been chosen by God. Well, today I want to dwell on the topic of election. Not for controversy, but for your comfort. Peter was not shy about this doctrine. Peter was not embarrassed by it. Proof that he began his letter with it. Paul was not shy about this doctrine. He began the letter to the Ephesians with this very doctrine. Jesus wasn't shy about it. He sprinkled this idea all throughout his teaching. At Desert Springs Church, we're not shy about this doctrine. Oh, it's not a hobby horse. It would be wrong for us to, no matter the passage, always run in this direction. You know, it's it's the story of David and Goliath, and all you can say is, God foreordained the stone to hit the the giant's head, and God chose David, not Goliath. And Well, the story might be a little bit about that, but not much. It'd be wrong for us to think that every sermon should somehow magically work its way towards this issue. That is a hobby horse, and there are some churches that do that with this doctrine or topic, and other churches that do it with another doctrine or topic. But, but as it comes up in our study of God's Word, specifically as we're working our way through a book of the Bible, we should talk about it. And that's one of the reasons why we go through books of the Bible, so that we're forced to do some things and tackle some things that we wouldn't go out of our way otherwise to talk about, like this doctrine. We haven't really made it a hobby horse at all. In fact, in nine and a half years of being Desert Springs' preaching pastor, 
I personally have never devoted a full sermon to this topic of election or predestination. Not because I've avoided it, just because in in the series that we've done, the books that we've gone through, it hasn't come up as a primary focus of a single passage. It doesn't really here either. Verses 1 to 2 talk about other things than election. In fact, they give a power-packed description of salvation in general. But this whole salvation package that Peter unfolds in these first two verses flows from election, we'll see. And because it's meant to be an encouragement to these persecuted Christians, because it will influence how we view the rest of the book, I wanted today to focus on this theme as we begin our series in 1 Peter so that we rightly understand why he puts this here and what it means. In essence, Peter wants to tell these Christians how they became Christians. He wants to encourage them in the reality that God makes Christians. Yeah, don't misunderstand. God makes Christians. They're not born. They don't make themselves. God makes them. Salvation is of the Lord, is the way Jonah put it. Paul puts it in Romans 9. He's the potter and we're the clay. He's the cook. We're the baker. And when I say he, I mean not just one person of the Trinity, but all three. Did you notice that there's a Trinitarian formula for your salvation here in these first two verses? It's the Father, and then a few words later, you have the Spirit. And then a few words later, you have Jesus Christ, telling us that they each do something distinct in the making of Christians. So let's start with the Father. The first thing in your outline is this, election by the Father. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, let's ask two questions about this thing of election. First, what is election in the Bible? And then secondly, what is foreknowledge? Why is election according to foreknowledge? And what does that mean? The first question, what is election in the Bible? What does it mean that it says that these Christians are elect? Well, the word means that they're chosen. They're chosen ones. That's a literal and fair translation of the Greek word. Being elect is an Old Testament concept. It's all through the Old Testament referring to the nation of Israel. They were God's elect. But you've got to back up to see how the story started there. It began with a guy named Abraham. And Abraham became the father of this elect nation, God's chosen nation, not because Abraham was so good, not because he was so godly. He was probably a pagan in his pagan world, doing pagan things. And God came to him and gave promises to him. And Abraham left home. And Abraham believed God. And from there came an elect nation, an elect people. And then you get to the New Testament. And this word elect is now being used for Gentiles and Jews who are part of God's people. First Peter is probably written to Gentiles scattered around the Roman world, now facing persecution. And they bear this new version of this Old Testament word, God's chosen. In fact, in 1 Peter 2.9... He says, you are a chosen race, a race of all races. Uh, Now in Father Abraham, because you believe. 
That's what the word elect means. The word elect or election is 18 times in the New Testament. Then you have these other words like chosen or predestined. In Ephesians 1, you have both of those put together. It says there that God chose us in him, in Jesus, when? Before the foundation of the world. What's the goal? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Or in other words, in love, he predestined us for adoption into the family as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? Why did he do this? What's the basis for him choosing and predestining? It's according to the purpose of his will. It's in his mysterious wisdom. It's what he wanted to do. It's what he thought was good, and he did it. So these words like election or chosen or predestination would seem at face value to mean just what they seem like they sound like. We may not like that. We may think they must mean something else. You may come across these words in your Bible, in your Bible reading, and say, that looks like X, but certainly it doesn't mean X. Well, it seems at least at face value, and let's start there, that it means that God is sovereign in our salvation, that he chooses, that a destiny is predetermined, predestined. That's what election is. Next question, though, is what is foreknowledge? You know, in Ephesians 1, Paul says we've been predestined according to the purpose of his will. But Peter says we've been elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So some have suggested that foreknowledge means that God looked into the future to see who would believe And then he elected them or chose them or predestined them because he saw that they would choose him. I don't think that's right. And I want to give you several reasons why. It'll take a while, but let me give you several several reasons why this word foreknowledge doesn't just mean that God looked into the future to see what you would do. And then because he knew you'd believe, he chose you. First, one I've already pointed out, that the word elect, as it's used in the Old Testament, refers to Israel. And back before that, it meant first Father Abraham. And Father Abraham didn't have love for God or worship of the true God. He didn't have what we would call an Old Testament gospel. And yet God came to him and he spoke to him. The word foreknow also can mean foreordain. In fact, that's what the Greek lexicons and dictionaries, the word experts who really know first century Greek, that's what they say it means over and over and over again. They say foreknow or foreknowledge has to do with God foreplanning, foreordaining. And to my knowledge in Scripture, never does it speak of God knowing the future in a way that's separate from him planning the future. So in Isaiah 46... It says there that God is declaring the end from the beginning. He knows the beginning and the end. From ancient times, things that have not yet been done, he knows the future. But the next line, he says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. He knows the future because he plans the future. 
I think that's what's also meant in Romans 8.29 then, where it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He knew them. He knew them and planned them. And that's one way in which this word foreknow can be understood. It can be understood in terms of an intimate knowledge. You might know that the Bible sometimes refers to the marital bed as knowing one another. And the Bible uses that similarly in God's relationship to his people. He knows them. So Romans 11.2, Paul says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That doesn't just mean these people whom he looked into the future and saw they would pick him and he hasn't rejected them because of it. No, he's talking about existing Christians in that context. In Amos 3.2, God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known. Not, you only have I foreseen. You only have I looked into the future about. No, he means no, intimately no, personally no. Savingly, no. In Genesis 18, God says, For I have chosen him regarding Abraham. And it's the same word as foreknown. Here, all the translators, for some reason, in this context, translated as chosen, not just foreknown. Hosea 13.5, It was I who knew you in the wilderness. I was your God. I knew you. So, not surprising, Jesus talks about knowing and who he knew in the same sort of way. Remember Matthew 7, verse 23, there'll be some on judgment day to whom he says, I never knew you, depart from me. Galatians 4, Paul says, now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. You see all this, all this material about being known by God? The Lord knows Think of even just Psalm 139, David's testimony there of God's intimate knowledge, that there he says God knew him in his mother's womb. And even before that, all the days before my life were planned as though there were not one, he knew him. Election and predestination then seem to be meaningless theological categories if they're simply God choosing us based on him knowing that we would choose him. You think about it. There's this major doctrine. You call it what you want, election or predestination. It's all over the Bible. It's used with multiple words, and each seems to suggest that God's doing something, that he's the decisive factor in the destiny but it only means that God chose us because he knew that we'd choose him? What's the point of having a whole theological category called election or predestination if it's simply God knowing the future? We have to ask also what comforting effect it's supposed to have on Christians that God simply knows what you would do. Remember, Peter writes this, beginning with the word elect as a means of comfort, as a means to give grace and peace multiplied to you. That's the purpose of election here and in other places as well. But why would it be comfort and peace and hope and confidence and praise if God simply knew what you would do? Why is it to his praise that he'd pick you only because he knew you would eventually pick him? Can you imagine saying that to a potential wife? 
I pursued you for marriage because a fortune teller told me that you'd say yes. She'd say, well, you must be pretty desperate then, right? What kind of man is that? We should also consider Peter's own experience with this doctrine. Matthew 16. There, Jesus asks Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He gets it right. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You didn't get this because you sized up the situation. You didn't get this because of intellect and synapses firing. You didn't get this, who Jesus is and what he came to do, because you're a a pretty good first century Columbo. You got it because God has revealed it to you. And he's blessed because of it. You see, our spiritual state is so troubled that we need something more than God knowing our response for us to be saved. There are many clear verses about our natural spiritual inability to see and to know and to understand. Romans 3.11 says that no man seeks after God. I don't think that's hyperbole. You say, well, I sought him. It felt like I sought him. Well, I know. We'll get to that. It's because he sought you. But in our natural state, Romans 3.11 stands, no man seeks after God. Or Ephesians 2, that we're born dead in our trespasses and sins. Not kind of sick, not needing a little help, but dead. There are just so many verses about God's initiative in salvation. About him giving what we need. Like Ephesians 2.9, which tells us that faith is a gift. Yeah, it's a responsibility, but it's also a gift. You've been saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. He saves in such a way that no man can boast. Did you know that repentance, yes, is a command, but it's also a gift? Acts 5.11 and 2 Timothy 2 tell us that repentance is granted by God. And if faith and repentance is something God does or produces in us, then it makes little difference whether God's foreknowledge is him looking into the future or him ordaining the future. Because whatever he sees about the future, he still has to provide for the future. Listen to Charles Spurgeon on this. He says, God himself did not foresee that there would be any love to him in us arising out of ourselves, for there never has been any not arising out of ourselves. And there never will be. He only foresaw that we should believe because he gave us faith. He foresaw that we should repent because his spirit would work repentance in us. He foresaw that we should love because he wrought that love within us. The case is self-evident. His foresight of what he means to do cannot be his reason for doing it. Another reason why foreknowledge is not just God looking into the future to see what you would do and then choosing you on account of it. There's nothing objectionable to that. The Apostle Paul, especially, in Romans 9, anticipates that if we get this doctrine right, our natural state will find it objectionable. It 
it doesn't go well with our natural sensibilities. Read Romans 9. Paul anticipates some questions and gives some answers back. He anticipates questions that we would be scratching our heads as he's working his way through this. He thinks that this is, to our natural sensibilities, objectionable. But no one, practically no one, has any trouble with God just knowing the future. It's him ordaining the future that really messes with us. A God who knows the future, that's fine. A God who demands the future, ordains the future, all of a sudden now I'm not in control. And one last reason why this foreknowledge is not God simply looking into the future, seeing what you would do, and then electing you on account of it, because Jesus was explicit. John 15, 16, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Or in 1 John, it's not that you first loved him, but that he first loved you. Could you imagine interpreting 1 John like this? He knew that you would love him, therefore he loved you. No. Well, God chooses, he elects. He predestines not according to our goodness or our smartness or our talent or our likability or because he thought you'd be good for the team. It's simply mysterious. It's according to his grace. It's because he decided to foreordain this and he decided to foreknow you. Why you? I don't know. Why me? Who knows? For his glory and for his mysterious good purposes. That's election by the Father. Secondly, we see sacrifice by the Son. We'll come back to election at the end. But notice that in verse 2, it moves on to the Spirit and then to Jesus. I'll switch the order here so we follow it in chronological order. The end of verse 2 says, For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Obedience to Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean ongoing Christian obedience or holiness. It has nothing to do with the Christian life as it's lived out in the years after our conversion. When he says obedience to Jesus Christ, he means obedient to the gospel call to repent and believe and put your hope in Jesus. He's talking about conversion. And the Bible uses obedience and the response to the gospel like this sometimes. Second Thessalonians 1 One day Jesus will come back and he will judge those who didn't obey the gospel of our Lord. This phrase, the obedience of faith, is all through the Bible. It's a way of describing the right response to the call, the command of the gospel to believe, to trust, to receive. To believe what? Trust in what? Receive what? The message of the blood of God. Of Jesus Christ, the work of the blood, the death of Jesus Christ. Peter will bring this up again later in chapter 1, verse 18. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus died because the payment of sin is death. Jesus died as a spotless lamb to cleanse us who were filthy rags. He's a perfect, spotless 
unblemished lamb. And his blood, ironically, washes white. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. In the New Testament, it's clear. That's from Jesus in his work on the cross and in his resurrection for us. He was a substitute. So election isn't enough. God saying, I choose you, I ordain you, I, I pick you, I set my love upon you. That's all fine and good, and it's very, very good. But what that meant was now Jesus must go and be a substitute and procure that relationship and that love. But getting this right, I mean, getting who Jesus is, don't miss it. It's not something we can accomplish. It's not based on intellect. It's not based on experience or soft-heartedness. None of us have one to begin with. Again, Peter knew that from his own experience. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And Paul knew it from his own experience. How did Paul get converted? He didn't get Jesus right away, did he? He opposed Jesus. But Jesus came to him, knocked him off his horse, came in light and glory, and he knew immediately it was Jesus. He knew that he was wrong. That's how God saves any of us, in a sense. You may not be in a horse going to persecute Christians. There may not be an audible voice or a, a real light. But Paul says that the way he was saved, 1 Timothy 1, is actually an example for all who would ever be saved. It's as if God did the same thing to us. That's how we get to understand who Jesus is and how his blood is applied. Another way of describing that is this third thing. It's calling by the Spirit. Calling by the Spirit. We have election by the Father, springing from that, the sacrifice by the Son, and then there's another layer still, the, sac- the, the, the calling of the Spirit. I think that's what's meant in verse 2, in the middle there, when it says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. You might hear sanctification and think Christian life, Christian growth, holiness, that kind of thing. But I don't think that's what Peter means here. Sanctification at its root means being set apart. I think in the context it's clear the Spirit sets us apart for this salvation that's been elected by God and purchased by the Son. He set us apart to the gospel. The Spirit's applying the Father's election, applying the Son's blood. It's calling. That's one word used in the Bible to describe this thing of the gospel hitting home to our hearts and our minds. We've been called, or we've been drawn, or God opened the heart, or God made us alive, or there's a new birth. In fact, that's actually the next verse in 1 Peter. Verse 3. There it tells us that he caused us to be born again to a living hope. The Spirit, it's like he called or set us apart, pulled us aside. He drew us in. It's like the Father caused us to be born again. 
And let's not miss the fact that if verse 3 tells us that we've been caused to be born again to a living hope, there's another reason why foreknowledge is not just God looking into the future to see what you would do. You would have done nothing if there wasn't a new birth from which faith and repentance sprung. But the calling of the Holy Spirit, the setting apart by the Spirit for the gospel is the gospel being brought to our reality and to our own experience. And it proves that it will be brought to completion at the end. Romans 8.30 tells us this. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified, declared righteous, forgave, redeemed. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a nice, neat, tidy package. Those elected are still the same ones at the end who are glorified in the new heaven and the new earth. And right there in the middle is this thing of our calling, the Spirit drawing us in. Oh, he doesn't force us to believe. He opens our eyes so that we see reality for what it is and we can't help but rejoice and embrace. That's the calling of the Spirit. Now, in the rest of our time together, I'd like to kind of work through some questions or objections to what I said so far. FAQs, you might call them. I've got eight of them. Some of them will be quick, some will be longer, but there are eight of them, so get comfy. You might say, if all this is true, isn't that unfair? Isn't that unfair? That God would choose some? Yeah, I think I've already said this. Paul anticipated that you'd say that. Read Romans 9. He anticipated that you would say, that seems unfair. That seems unjust. It seems like the others should not be blamed. But there's actually a parable about this too. Jesus gave this parable of the landowner in Matthew 20. There in Matthew 20, I'll put it in contemporary terms for us, American terms. Say there's a farmer, and at uh, 10 a.m., he knows he needs some workers, so he goes down to the the union or whatever, the the help place, and he picks up three workers. He tells them, I'll give you a full day's wage. They come and they work for him. At about noon, he realizes, I need more workers. We've got to get stuff done here. He goes back out, and he finds more, and he says, I'll pay you a full day's wage. Come work for me today. And then like 4 o'clock, he realizes, man, I still need more workers. And so he goes out and he gets a few more and he says to them, I'll pay you a full day's wage for today's labor. At the end of the day, they've all worked, but in varying hours, degrees, right? And so the landowner lines up these people in opposite order from which they came to the land. Those who started there last, he starts with them first and he gives them a full day's wage, just like he said, people next to him that came at, you know, 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock, whatever, they're thinking, oh, man, I worked three more hours than these chumps, and they got a full day's wage. One, two, three. That means I get three days' wage. But he only gives them one day's wage. And then those who worked all day, he gave them one day's wage. At the end, they complain. The ones who worked longer say, what is this? You gave them just as much as us, but we worked twice as much or three times as much. 
And Jesus says, didn't I say I'd give you a full day's wage? And if I want to give them more, is it not my business? You see, it's easy to confuse grace with justice. When we say something is unfair, we best be careful. We don't want fair. We don't want fair. Fair is hell. Yesterday. For all. And in God's mercy, he not only gives way more to all than we deserve. He gives life, he gives patience, he gives glory and joys. And and, and the gospel goes forth in the world freely. And we would all reject it of our own volition, but for some, he gives more. He opens hearts. And you say, well then, okay, maybe it's fair, maybe it's not, I don't know, but why pray? Why pray if he's in control like this? I say, why pray if he's not in control like this? Don't we already know this from our own prayers, our own prayer lists? You have people on there that aren't Christians, and you're praying for God to open their hearts, open their eyes to see. Lord, we pray you'd give them faith. Why do we know to pray like that? How come nobody prays? Father, I just want you to know that Jimmy needs to be saved, but... uh, We know you've done everything you can do, and the rest is up to Jimmy. So I just want to let you know that we know you're off the hook. Amen. Nobody prays that way. We all want God to intervene, to work, to give light and life. You say, okay, well, that's prayer, but why preach to people then? Doesn't this just short-circuit the gospel spreading, the gospel proclamation in the world? Well, did you know that... Our missionary forefathers all believed this doctrine and found it to motivate their mission. They went to a land knowing, believing that God had people there. William Carey, Adoniram Judson, David Livingstone, David Brainerd all believed this. Our best old evangelists all believed this. Whitfield and Spurgeon. And more importantly, the Bible tells us that God uses and plans to use the preaching of his word in order to bring life. It's not just the preaching of his word, but it's the preaching of his word and his spirit giving life to it. Like Ezekiel, who was told to preach to dry bones, to live. And he did, and he lived. Or like Paul preaching in Acts 16, and there it says that Lydia had her heart opened by the Lord to receive the things that were spoken by Paul. Paul spoke, the Spirit opened, and then their salvation. You might say, but it's confusing and mysterious, and I've got a million questions, so shouldn't we just leave it alone? Isn't this hidden and mysterious? Well, it isn't hidden. It's revealed. It's in God's word. It's not just for theologians. It's not just for pastors. Remember, this is written to simple Christians in the Roman world who were being persecuted, even surprised that they were being persecuted. And Peter thinks that a good shot in the arm is to remind them that God chose them. Oh, I know, it's wrong to peer too far into the mind of God to try to presume things that aren't in his word, but it's also wrong to chicken out or be lazy or 
just whistle and turn the page in our Bible so we don't see that word. I know, we don't know who is elect. We don't know who isn't. We don't know why you or why me. There's mystery, but there's much that's revealed, and it's in a lot of places. It's not the kind of thing we should toss aside. Well, you say, well, maybe not, but it's controversial and it divides, so maybe we should just hands off with it because it divides. It's controversial. But the gospel itself divides. Jesus is controversial. There are a lot of things he said that were hard to hear. In John 6, it ends with some going away from Jesus' teaching, leaving him because they said, these are hard sayings. One of the hard sayings that was in John 6 is verse 44, where Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's a hard saying, I admit it. But don't go away because it's hard. Instead, be like Peter who said, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Maybe you're not a Christian and you'd ask the question, Whose fault is it if I don't believe? If all this is true, then am I off the hook? Is it not my fault? God just has to do something and I'll just wait for it. And if not, then it's his fault, not mine. No. If you don't believe, it's your fault, not God's. You see, we don't believe because we don't want to believe. That's true for everyone who doesn't believe. God calls, and he calls to all. Isaiah 55 has God saying, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Buy my wine and my milk without money and without price. He welcomes freely. That's how our Bibles end. Revelation 22, come, let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Take the water of life without price. If you don't want to come to him, it's because you don't want to come to him. And if you keep refusing Christ for the rest of your life, what complaint can you possibly have if at the end he passes you by and leaves you to, to your sin? Won't you get exactly what you wanted, what you chose, what, what you pursued? Here again is Spurgeon. He says, is there any of you here this morning who wishes to be holy, who wishes to be made new or regenerate, to leave off sin and walk in holiness? Yes, says someone, I do. Then God has elected you. But another says, no, I don't want to be holy. I don't want to give up my lusts and my vices. Why should you grumble then that God has not elected you to it? For if you were elected, you would not like it according to your own confession. Let me just pick at this a, a smidgen more. If you're not a Christian and you're indifferent to the gospel, you're indifferent to Jesus' invitation, but you're hearing today that God is sovereign in salvation, I, I gotta ask. I, I gotta ask humbly, but with fear and trembling. What kind of God do you think he is? Do you think that you can go through your life Riding your own train, doing your own thing, ignoring him, suppressing him, even mocking him. And then when you're good and ready and bored with your sin, you can snap your fingers and he'll come running. 
You think he's the kind of God that you can jerk around your whole life and then on a whim just say, yep, and he's there? Well, he may. He is that merciful. He just may. But who are you to presume? Salvation is his. You're not sovereign. But if right now you feel like he's doing an eye-opening work, embrace it, run to him, receive it all. And if you do, and it proves to be the real thing, guess what? You couldn't have done otherwise. You're his, you're elect. He doesn't just initiate or poke or prod or, or pick. He doesn't start the car and hand you the wheel and see if you want to drive. He is the author and finisher of our faith. Aren't those potent words in light of what we're talking about this morning? One more question you might ask. Why is this a good thing? Why did God do it this way? Why is this in the Bible? Why should I like this? Because without it, no one would be saved. Not you, not me. No one would understand. No one would get it. No one would seek him. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. He says in 1 Corinthians 1 that we preach Christ crucified. And that's a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles. But for some, to those who are called, both Jew and Gentile, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So picture two guys 20 years ago listening to Billy Graham preach at a crusade. They hear the gospel. It's clear. One just thinks it's ridiculous. He smirks the whole time and walks away and feels quite justified in what he's always believed. The other is pricked to the heart. He's convicted. He's, he's believing that Jesus is the one who dies in our place and gives us salvation. He's saved. Two men hear the same gospel message. One believes, the other one doesn't. Why? Is the saved one going away saying, <laughs> that poor chump, he didn't have enough sense to buy in. I did. I heard that, made sense, got it, I'm smarter. Or I was raised in a spiritual home, so I'm more sensitive. Is that why he believed? Or did God do something? No one would be saved without it. Why else is this a good thing? Why is this in the Bible? Because it humbles us and it exalts God. Salvation in this light is more God-encompassing. And it's less about your work than you previously thought. In light of this, your vision of God can be expanded. He's more active and more involved and more powerful and more needed in your salvation than you've previously thought. And we are more desperate than we would naturally think. Sin isn't just wrong or misguided or a, a sickness, it's death. The Puritans used to say that a good test of right doctrine is whether it exalts God higher and lays man lower. This one surely does. 
God gets more glory this way. That's his plan. That's what we should want. Less glory to us, more glory to him. It glorifies his grace specifically. Paul ends 1 Corinthians 1 on this theme. God saves in such a way that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No bragging, no self-confidence. He saves in such a way so that we can only glory in him. But then we can glory in him and know that it's in him. Our hope is anchored in him. And it's anchored deep in God himself and in eternity's past. It wasn't him looking to see how good your faith would be. It's him producing faith in you for his glory. It gives more assurance, not less. It's intensely intimate and personal. It's not just some vague sort of thing that he loves everybody but that he set his love on you. Maybe you need to resolve to study this more. Study it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Study it with your Bible. Don't Google it. We Google everything today. It's hit or miss on the web. I mean, there are some things that would disagree with what I said today that are good and bad versions of that. And then there are some things that would agree with what I said today, and there are good and bad versions of it. You might not know what's good and what's bad version of it, though. So be careful. But let us point you in the direction of some good resources and just open your Bible. Sit down with a friend. Start looking things up. Start searching online on a Bible where you can look up words. You can look up election. You can see what's around that word on your own. If you need to resolve to study it more, maybe you need to accept what you already know. Perhaps you need to acknowledge that you've been putting up a fight with your Bible for a number of years. Perhaps far too long you've come across certain words and you look down and you said, move along, move along, nothing to see here. (laughs) Maybe it's time to give up the fight, put up the white flag. No, not get it all, but at least take God at his word and not kick against it or... Try to hide it. Perhaps even before today, you've known about this doctrine, believed that it's true, but it's never been cherished. For you, it's something like a tetanus shot. It's a, you know it's real. I'm sure it's good for something, but you don't exactly enjoy it. It's nothing like a chocolate shake. So get it over with and let me go. Get a chocolate shake, Ryan. Maybe today, maybe by God's sovereign revealing grace. Maybe today you taste and see that God is good in your salvation from start to finish and the start goes all the way back before he spoke worlds into existence. He knew you then. He set his love on you then. He purposed to save you then. And it's a good thing he did. One more quote from good old Spurgeon. He says, there is no more humbling doctrine in Scripture than that of election. None more promoting of gratitude, and consequently, none more sanctifying. Believers should not be afraid of it, but adoringly rejoice in it. Christian, embrace it. Cherish it. Study it. Study it with eyes of faith, trusting him for what he says. Study it unto praise unto your own assurance and confidence in his grace for your joy, 
for your time in your exile. You've been cast aside by someone? Relish being chosen by God.